right, team. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. Glad to have you here again. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. It's been wonderful to have so many of you sharing the episodes lately on Instagram and on different platforms. I appreciate you tagging me in them. And just really grateful for the messages that you've been sending me, letting me know what conversations you've been enjoying, the guests that I should have on the show, and uh, the, the many episodes that I've been putting out that you've really enjoyed. So as always, feel free to send me a message on Instagram, DM me, and I'm happy to hear about who you'd like to have on the show or just fire me off an email, info at mantalks.com. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the guests that you'd like to have on the show and the, maybe the questions that you'd like me to answer. So joining me today is a guest that I've wanted to interview for a while. His name is Henry Shookman. And he is the spiritual director at Mountain Cloud Zen Center. And I wanted to have Henry on the show for a number of reasons. I wanted to talk about koans and what Zen is, what the sort of misconceptions of Zen are, what a Zen practice looks like. And this is going to be a two-part conversation, one part now and one part in in a month or two. We didn't get around to koans. We actually just got into what Zen is and what it's not and a little bit about the practice. But let me tell you about Henry. So he has been taught and trained by several Zen teachers. The the Roshis, the Roshi is is sort of like a a master uh, within the Zen practice. Uh, Joan Reich, John Gaynor, Ruben Habito, and Yamada Rion Roshi, as well as by many other teachers and mentors in other traditions. He currently guides a wide range of students from all walks of life. He has received Dharma transmission or Inka Shomei, from Yamada Reon Roshi, the abbot of Sanbo Zen, and is a Zen master of the Sanbo Zen lineage of Kamakura, Japan, and previously had a career as an award-winning author and poet. So we get in a little bit at the beginning about uh, Henry's journey in the beginning of his life and what actually led him to Zen in the first place, what led him to this, this path. And he shares a few of his experiences in terms of what one might call awakenings and and an awakening experience and the challenges that he was facing at that time of his life. And then we start to talk about what what Zen actually is, what it's not, what some of the misconceptions are, what the practices look like. And so this this is a great start to a conversation. If you've ever been curious about Zen, or even if you haven't been curious, it's just a fascinating conversation about a form of spiritual practice that specifically, you know, back in the 60s and 70s made its way into the West and has become quite popular. And I remember in my early to mid-20s reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh, which is a great book. If you haven't read it, I I strongly recommend it. And uh, I remember sending a copy to my dad after that. And I was like, you got to read this book. And that kind of sent me down the Zen rabbit hole. And I read countless books after that. And kind of got into learning a little bit about Zen and what it is and how to practice it. And so it's it's a very interesting lineage, philosophy, meditation practice, and way of being. So without any further delay, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And please welcome Henry Shookman. All right, Henry, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Very nice, thanks. Very happy to be joining you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I have been following your your work for a while. I think I heard you on Tim Ferriss's podcast uh, a yeah. while ago, 
and just started following along with some of your your work got very interested in your life and your journey and you know what brought you into the work that you do today so i'm excited to explore this conversation with you uh, but before we begin i have to you know sort of put you to the question that i've asked all my prior guests which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life <laughs> okay <laughs> okay um, I could go to so many places. I'll just, I'll just dive in with a man I met when I was about 12 years old, who was a old school British tramp, a real, what they called a tramp, not what it means today, actually. It, me, it, met, it met these old, these old guys, generally guys who didn't live anywhere or they didn't have a roof over their head most nights. They, and it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it wasn't entirely enforced homelessness. It, it was a way of life. And it had been going on in England, Britain, for hundreds of years to some degree. And um, in the 1970s, when I was a kid, it was still going on. And, you know, tramps were meaning, it's just something like a hobo, you know, something like that, were, um, you know, a feature of life, you know. And um, I got to know one quite well in the valley where I spent repeated chunks of my childhood in the middle of southern England uh, called the Charwell Valley, um, about 20 miles north of the old city of Oxford. And it was, you know, really a real rural scenario. And Speedy, he was called, he used to come to the valley in spring and leave in the fall. You know, and there was a ruined mill that he used to stay in with a couple of his dogs. And basically he sort of befriended, it began with the dogs, the dogs befriended our dogs. And then we started to meet him and he, he, he started to teach me stuff about how to live on the land, just rudimentary things, you know, where to sleep, how to, you know, set a rabbit snare and, and, um, had a gutter rabbit. I mean, you know, stuff that as a I wouldn't want to do today, but as a twelve-year-old boy, I just drank it in, and started to start. I started to embark on um, a relationship with the land, and that became the critical growth opportunity of my sort of emerging from childhood. You know, sort of the latter part of my childhood. It was it was the, what, what, whatever growth happened then. And probably it wasn't enough, you know, but whatever there was, somehow it was under the tutelage of this guy teaching me about being on the land. It was land, hills, streams, rivers, trees, meadows, you know, that was where a certain kind of growth could happen that could not happen any other way. I I come to believe, you know. Phew. So that was, okay, there's a little story. I don't know how much of a story it is. But, no, 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 that's, uh, that's beautiful. I mean, that's well articulated. It's interesting, you know, obviously one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show was to talk about Zen and sort of understand it, you know, more than just a sort of basic understanding that maybe some people have if they read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or have listened to a couple minutes of Alan Watts or something like that. And it's interesting because there almost seems to be a connection between the tramp, right? This archetype of the vagabond roaming around and the, the sort of like free spiritedness, not connected to anything or anywhere or any place that harkens back to an old time in Japan or in China where some monks would really just roam. They didn't necessarily have a temple, right? They 
they would just sort of have all their their stuff in a little sack tied to a a stick and they were just roaming through the country and and the the land and nature was their teacher and they would go from sometimes monastery to monastery and ha, you know have sort of philosophical conversations and so mm-hmm. was there is there some connection there like am i pulling out a thread that has some form of merit to it <laughs> yeah 100% 100% exactly i mean really the um you know the the one other component in that scenario you you drew beautifully of sort of early zen quite as you rightly said to sort of japan and before it china you know back in 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth centuries CE in China. It was an amazing cultural period. There were in the Tang Dynasty China. It has been somewhat idealized probably, but still it's true that there were a lot of people in, you know, middle class level of society, highly educated or somewhat educated, often working in bureaucracy or government because there was a large bureaucracy, you know who actually valued taking large chunks of time off to wander in the mountains. And um, among their, on their wandering, they would, yes, they'd go and visit Zen masters in monasteries and temples, in hermitages, little hermit huts, you know. And they'd also meditate themselves. That was a sort of valued activity. And write poems. And so, you know, when I was a... When I was a a young teen, I kind of had a this sort of um, sort of psycho spiritual sort of growth spurt kind of thing between twelve and fifteen, I guess, when I really got into the Beats, Kerouac and Ginsberg and um, Gary Snyder. You know, even though I was living in England, you know, it's this exotic thing going on in the, in the in the great mighty United States. You know, people hitchhiking across the land and working on jobs and that kind of life. You know was what I really aspired to. and But they would write as well. They would write beautiful poems. They, it was exactly like those old Chinese vagabonds who were also poets and meditators and who who sort of, um, yeah, not connected to any particular place, but also in a sense connected everywhere. They were finding that, you know, this thing that Zen calls original nature, that there's some level of our being that is all inclusive, all encompassing, that we're never separate from. And when we find that, we find we're connected to everything. That that and that's a kind of that's the sort of as near as there is to something like a bedrock in Zen. Sort of the underlying principle of Zen is that this world we live in and the way we navigate life and so on, it, it all makes sense on one level, but it's it's a, it's an incomplete picture because there's a, this other level where there's a great wholeness, you know, in which all things are sort of one, you know, and the Zen journey is finding that. But then actually that's not the end of the journey at all because the longer, harder journey is learning to live that in normal life. You know, there's this emphasis in Zen on not not having that that whatever the sort of pivotal experiences of Zen are, they're not about something really special they should sort of, in a way, make us just savor the ordinary more than, more than ever, you know, and appreciate just being able to have a conversation like we're doing is is the great miracle. 
not some highfalutin insight into the nature of the cosmos or something, you know. (laughs) But that, I mean, that part is, you know, I think it's the allure of spiritual, philosophical frameworks like Zen to most people, you know, is that you're going, you're accessing some secret, you know, and this is maybe a sort of mundane uh, example, but, uh, you know, I remember watching Kung Fu Panda the first time and, uh, you know, he gets to the point where he gets the scroll and then this, you know, the scroll has nothing on it. It's just a golden mirror that reflects back his image. And he, he's very disappointed. And he goes back and he has a conversation with his his father, who's a, a duck. And the more I talk about this example, the more I'm like, this sounds so childish. Uh, but <laughs> but the, the, he goes back to make soup and take over his father's uh, noodle business. His father has a noodle soup business. And and there's a secret to his father's noodle soup. And his father finally discloses the secret, which is that there's no secret ingredient, yeah. you know? Yes. And it's sort of this epiphany moment where he realizes that the mirror reflecting back his image is that he already is, you know, it. You know, he's already a part exactly. of everything. He already has the secret within him, et cetera. And so it's, it is interesting because I think our ego needs a kind of hook to bring us in. And I think that the Western ideology of enlightenment is that hook, you know, this notion that you're going to get this sort of luminous understanding of the cosmos and all of her secrets will be revealed to you, um, which I think is certainly a part of it. Yes. Um, and then, yeah. So can, can you just comment on that? Maybe uh, just sort of take that and run with it. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Very, you speak beautifully, actually, Connor. Very, <laughs> I mean, it's just lovely listening to you. And thank you. I mean, you're, you're right on. I totally agree. Um, I suppose the the Zen view would be, or if I could speak to that, I don't even know. One way of looking at it from a Zen perspective is that there is something sort of special to be discovered, but it's only special in the sense that we just don't normally see it. It's not special in the sense that it's some, you know, remote and spectacular accomplishment because it's already here. What, 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 you know, all these almost corny spiritual paradoxes are true that what we're looking for is totally already here. So, so a great teacher, a great figure like the Buddha, you know, all he could do was help people find something that they already had. Same is true today with any, no, you know, no matter the guru or the spiritual methodology or the app you're listening to, you know, if it's a meditation app, all they're really guiding us to is something that you could say we already have, or you might better say we already are, but we're just really unaccustomed to noticing it. We're, we're very strongly habituated, conditioned, both by our culture, but also by ourselves, you know, we... We do our own conditioning as well as, of course, external events will encourage us to condition ourselves certain ways, of course. But really, it's us that obscures what I would say it's fair to say we most want. That There's nothing, I think we humans long for nothing so much as peace and happiness, a sense of belovedness and loving. And that's what this central zen you know awakening insight thing gives it gives this sense and it gives all the above that we discover sort of all along we have been kind of maximally loved you know 
without having to lift a finger. We, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's not to do with that. We, we, you know, from the point of view of what Zen calls original nature, you know, there is no need to deserve it. It's, it's automatic, you know, and we're all, you know, we're all basically bathing in it right now, but it's not that easy to be aware of it simply because of conditioned ways of experiencing. So it sort of is a bit special in some ways, but it also definitely isn't in other ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. I was just going to say, I think that's, I think that's great. I, I want to, I want to just sort of come back to a little bit of the basics so that we can then traverse hopefully into some of the, the deep end um, of the pool as it, as it were. So why Zen for you? What, what drew you towards it? What was your experience um, because I, I think that that is kind of interesting based off of what I've read and what I know about you. Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, I think, you know, in part it's what we were already talking about, that as a, as a teenager I was reading basically Zen poetry. I didn't really know it was Zen. I just knew it was fantastic poetry that I loved, you know, by those old Chan or Zen masters from from China. Then I... I guess, yeah, I was like reading, you know, reading the Dharma Bums by Kerouac. He was talking about Zen a lot in that. So I started picking up this Zen thing. And then actually, if I could um, talk a little personally on this, I had a sudden moment of the rending of the veil, you know, out of the blue when I was 19. I actually, funny enough, in spite of being into all that poetry, I hadn't realized then that there was something to be seen that I wasn't already seeing. I sort of hadn't picked up that side of Zen because most of the poetry that I was tuning into by the Zen, old Zen is, was more about missing old friends and having sad partings from loved ones and wandering the hills and valleys and gorges alone and sitting on in the high mountains with clouds and stuff. It was more, there wasn't really direct mention of, you know, the Zen experience of awakening. And so so it really wasn't actually on my radar. But suddenly when I was 19, out of the blue, I happened to have a really quite strong revelatory sort of moment out of nowhere that, that really turned my world upside down because I had no idea what it was, but I I knew I'd, I'd suddenly sort of discovered the truth of life or something. It's what it felt like. And, you know, and it just, it just came out of nowhere. And probably, I mean, if that hadn't happened, I mean, who knows, but if it hadn't happened, I might have been a person who would have remained very skeptical of this kind of talk, you know, about awakening, enlightenment, something called original nature. I probably would have, because I was basically more of a sort of literary kind of guy, or at least aspiring to be that, aspiring from a young age to be a writer and a poet. And I wasn't really, you know, it didn't really sort of, have an interest in anything like sort of spirituality or mysticism. I wasn't interested in that. Um, I was more interested in, you know, kind of really living fully and, 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 and writing and poetry, which I love to read as well as write. So, but this thing happened and it was very uh, wonderful, utterly wonderful for several weeks. And then it was really difficult because I, I'd actually been away, been working away, far away from home when it happened. And I went home and I was just uh, overwhelmed by all the unexamined misery and trauma of my childhood. 
which I just hadn't reckoned with. As a child, I'd, I'd sort of totally compartmentalized it and buried it, really, and tried to just manage to keep going sort of thing. But when I came home, having had this experience, I was so open and so sort of uh, sensitive to, to life that as soon as I came home, it kind of uh, swamped me, this, this old unhappiness that had gone unrecognized for so long. And now I could see it and, and it was, I just had no, I had no means of handling it. It came so suddenly and so thoroughly, it really overwhelmed me. And I, I, I tumbled into a kind of despair that actually, you know, bit by bit, I started to work my way out of, but over years, and it was only in my mid, when I was 24, I started meditating and then almost immediately started therapy with a really amazing therapist and some friends of mine, the young, he had a little group of sort of 20 or 20 people in their twenties. And I've had a long sort of journey of healing and trying to sort of reckon with the trauma of my early years, which was long and sustained and very difficult really. And so can you, can you go back and just maybe give some context for the experience itself? Cause I feel like that might just serve for the, just what we're pointing towards. I think might I think it might help the listener. Yeah. On the, well, on the trauma side, I mean, I, uh, I was left alone by my mother when I was six months old for 10 days. And that was the way she weaned me. And when she came back, this, this is all, all that I know. When she came back, I was totally covered from cranium to soles of my feet in very bad eczema, which is like a, you know, a skin, uh, skin affliction. And I mean, I went to hospital repeatedly as a, as a young child for stretches of time with, with impetigo when the eczema would get infected. And, and it was really, it was really nasty. And it lasted actually into my twenties. I mean, less gradually, less severely, but it was, it was very, you know, it was really a chronic thing and profoundly uncomfortable because it, it wasn't just like a rash, you know, it was all over my body. It was, sometimes it was, it was, it was pretty disfiguring and it was, it was excruciating, you know, with pain and itch, basically, but insane amounts of itching and, and pain and bleeding. And uh, it was, it was really quite nasty. And so there was that, there was also some, you know, really uh, dysfunctional household family things, painful family breakup and remarriage. And, and I was, yeah, like I said, I was sort of, somehow I, I got through it by just, sort of in a, in, in a semi-denial, semi-numbness, some dissociation, I think, and through childhood, you know, because I was fairly high-functioning, at least academically, I was very motivated. Then, after this time away, when actually I was free of eczema, working abroad and then backpacking, then I came home and the eczema actually came right back. <laughs> But I also had this sort of psychological sort of collapse and only slowly sort of picked my way out of it. And the experience that you, because I think what's, what's good is you're creating the, you know, you're giving a sense of like what the pain was that you were going through. And I think what you described is how most of us deal with that childhood pain that we experience, whether it's through divorce or abuse or neglect or, or whatever. And I think that it's, 
I mean, it's incredible how resilient children are, you know, when they don't necessarily, no one's told them that they need to be that way or that they have to act a certain way or that they have to face that discomfort a certain way. But it seems to be hardwired in us from a very young age of like, you just survive. Yes. Yes. You know, and that we we sort of come out and we we realize that an almost I think Jung would probably say at an unconscious level or at a collective unconscious level that there's this part of us that is, knows that it just has to survive, uh, and so we get by. But the body metabolizes that pain in in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I'm curious as to how your experience when you were 19, this sort of I don't know if you would refer to it as an awakening experience or a liberation experience or how would you necessarily define it, whether or not it needs terminology, I don't know. But if you can give some context to that and what it did to your relationship to that that suffering in your upbringing. God, yeah. Okay, happily. I mean, I was actually, I was at the time I was, I was all alone on a beach and I was looking at the sun getting low in the sky right before setting. And uh, I mean, this is this is a literal context for it, you know. And I was just studying the the light on the water, and when I could, you know, for little periods of time, and because it was very, very bright. And um, I just was pondering, well, wait a minute, the water is basically transparent, and air is transparent, and what I'm seeing is simply this surface where one transparent body meets another transparent body. And all that's happening is light is bouncing off it and the light's moving and it's light. light is incredibly bright. But at the same time, among all these sort of scales of very bright light, the water seems really black, actually. So it's black and it's white and it's white. What's going on? And all of a sudden, while I was just pondering this, I guess, poet style, you know, pondering the puddle kind of thing, <laughs> except in this case, it was the ocean, I suddenly it just sort of switched and and what i was looking at wasn't outside me i was totally it was just one enveloping thing you know i, I did, there's no word for it really sort of one dream one mind one body all the whole scene outside me was me and i was it and there was just no way of kind of separating There was no separation between I who was looking at it and it that it was being looked at. We were just one thing. And when I, when that hap sort of showed itself, then it suddenly was as if there really was hardly anything here at all, except this kind of sort of, it was like a sort of field of shifting sparks really is what it was like. But I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm telling you very frankly what it was like. But there was no distance, there was no time, there was no, it was just one, 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 and incredibly beautiful. And it was a fairly powerful sort of, maybe not exactly just one flash, it was a little longer than that, but it wasn't long. But it had a really long aftermath when, I, you know, I sort of, at some point I kind of knew again that I was a human being standing on the sand and but filled with this sense of love and and above all belonging it seemed like i discovered or somehow it had been revealed in that moment that i didn't just belong i, I was just inseparable from the fabric of all things is what it felt like so belonging had been a kind of issue for me through my childhood because 
uh, you know, sort of at odds with the, how, the various households I was part of at different times. Um, uncomfortable, obviously, in my own skin, and um, and then also there was a there was a sort of a little bit of a racial factor because I was Jewish in a culture, namely 1970s UK, that was sort of not really very openly anti-Semitic, but it had a sort of undercurrent of semi-hidden anti-Semitism that that sometimes wasn't so hidden, you know. And so that actually the first racial identity I realised I had was really when somebody identified me as a Jew in a kind of negative, pejorative way. I don't want to go too much into the weeds. I had actually been brought up basically without any Judaism. My dad was a, an atheist and, and we, weren't, we weren't really practising or even sort of very... It, it really wasn't part of our identity in my early years actually until it sort of started to be impressed on me from outside so anyway that that gave a sense of like another layer of sort of not really knowing the feeling of belonging and then this experience happened where wow this is like a unconditional belonging and it was so so beautiful and and then that was another thing that was sort of you know I felt sort of I was bereft of when I came home suddenly felt I spiraled into a kind of deeply shame-based isolation, mm. you know. You know, just the experience that you describe, I think, is is interesting. I had a very similar moment when I was 20 or 21 in Italy and had this sort of collapse or radical expansion of either one, I guess you could say either one, but of consciousness looking out over olive fields the, just as far as I could see, and I couldn't see, I, you know, just, and all at once, it just sort of collapsed, and I could feel at one with it, you know, as if they were looking back at, you know, as if I was looking back at myself through the olive orchard that just spanned for thousands of acres and miles as far as I could see, and uh-huh. and the way you describe it is is very, I mean, it's almost identical, you know, and I've had a couple other experiences like that where, it's hard to put it into words. You know, it's very hard to describe what it is. Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. that's part of the experience. Would you say, I don't want, well, maybe let's just go down the path of Zen. Let's just, let's just take a turn into that before, before (laughs) I go too far down. (laughs) I want to go down that path, but, but okay. Zen. But hey, hey, I mean, let's go down that. Let's go where you want to go. Well, I was it, gonna, might, it might steer us to Zen anyway. I was going to ask: Is you know, is that would, would that constitute as a kind of satori moment? Like I think in um, I've heard that you that word used quite a few times, and heard people talk about it, and this sort of sudden awakening that happens in a moment that doesn't necessarily uh, that permeates our being, but maybe doesn't necessarily keep us there for an elongated period of time. And I asked that question specifically because I've noticed within myself and I've noticed within a lot of people who are spiritual but don't identify within a religious context that there's this predilection towards chasing Satori and our culture chasing our, our culture chasing these moments of enlightenment through ayahuasca or mushrooms or 
uh, Vipassana meditations or, you know, something where people have a moment and they're trying to get back to that experience because it is so blissful and beautiful. And I know I've caught myself in that and I know I've certainly heard it within the culture. And so I was curious, would you describe that as a Satori moment or how would you describe Satori? And then what are your thoughts on this sort of draw towards or our our desire towards trying to come back into those moments of sort of bliss and oneness and 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 the connection with everything so just a small question and okay. maybe three questions yeah. in one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay let me see what i could do i think it's terribly important you know i really do uh, all all aspects of what you were just asking let me see what i can how i can just parse it out a little bit how i would see it the first thing would say Yes, basically, there's another word that's commonly used in Zen as well than Satori, which is Kensho, which in some ways is, is a clearer word to use. It means seeing original nature, literally. And it, it does indeed mean something like what, what we've both apparently undergone in our, in our youth. You know, that's a very beautiful description of the olive orchard looking back at you with the orchard looking back at yourself. I, I, I know what you're talking about is very wonderful. And um, yes, indeed, I think that would be, these would qualify as Kensho. Now, Satori is a slightly more complex term in the sense that it can be, sometimes it's used synonymously with Kensho, and sometimes it's used as, as a label for actually what is perhaps a deeper kind of experience that can also happen uh, after usually long Zen training kind of thing. And that has other names as well, that, that deeper kind of experience. And the reason it's deeper is only in the sense that, you know, the Kensho, or, or sometimes also called Satori, in one sense Satori is used, you know, it is basically temporary. <laughs> it sort of happens and then it sort of recedes. And of course it leaves a most important impression and it, it, you know, it's shown us something and um, that we had not thought of before or heard it. Maybe we've heard of something like that before, but it's nothing like, you know, seeing it for ourselves or experiencing it for ourselves. There's no compensation for that. That's the only, the only way to know it is to find you are it. And we do in those moments. And then it tends to recede and the, the, you know, the habitual ways of experiencing, you know, come back. And that's quite natural and normal. And, and it can leave us with a longing to sort of go back there. But I think in part, not only the sort of the, you know, the euphoria of it, yes, but also I would say, I mean, in my own case, I think what was really left me so bewildered was that I knew it was true. I knew that in some way, this wasn't just a kind of optional, other, nicer way of experiencing things. It was closer to reality. Can the I, way that I ordinarily experience, yeah. yeah no, no, go, I was just yeah, going to say it's uh, it's almost like uh, the sensation of being in some ways. I think I heard Alan Watts describe something along those lines. You know, it's like you have the sensation of putting your hand on the table, and then there is a kind of sensation of touching being or consciousness, and there is a fundamental truth within that. You know, that is. Yeah. Anyways, I didn't mean to to interrupt. Please, please continue. 
Yes, yes, yes. But let me just, I, I agree with you totally. And I think it's a good point to bring up. And just to avoid confusion, let's say, I mean, because there would be the way of knowing your hand on the table. And like, that could be a practice of mindfulness, just to really pay attention to the sensations of the hand on the table. But this is not the same as that. It's, it's like that only in the sense that, you know, as vividly as you can know the sense of your hand on the table, you know what it is to be all things. You know that in some sense, the core of your being or something, something to do with your awareness of being alive is totally inclusive. And it's, it's that that is when we sort of somehow open up to that or are opened up by that or whatever it is that happens in those moments, you know, we just know this is real. It's, it's not, Hey, this is a nice thing to experience. It's like, this is closer to how things really are. You know, on some level, I realized when that happened to me when I was 19, that it was like the angle of light had changed on reality. And I could see wow, if the light shifts one way, it looks like the world I know. And if it shifts a little bit another way, it's still the world I know, but you see right through it. You know, so it doesn't, it doesn't cease to be table and hand and, you know, Henry and, and Connor and, you know, computers and, you know, sky and planes and trains and automobiles, you know. But what those are and what are my awareness of them all is really shown to be something else entirely at the same time. So I always say it is more real. That's the important point about it. If it weren't more real, it wouldn't matter. If it were merely, you know, a state you could induce, whether through drugs or meditation, it wouldn't matter, really. But it does matter because it's more real, meaning more true. <laughs> and it's, you know, and some would say that is the truth, you know, so whatever. We get into all kinds of problems if we go down that road. But, but, hey, wait, 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 wait. I've got to wind it back because he had three aspects in the last question. And I've been addressing one of them. The, well, have I kind the, of done more than one? I can't. You did. You, de- you certainly did. And I, I think what I had thrown in that maybe, uh, maybe would be interesting is the, just the notion of chasing it. You oh, know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Chasing, because I see that a lot within our yeah. culture where because there's this void of meaning, I, yeah. I this is, again, my frame, yeah. but that there's a void of meaning culturally within our society that when people have a, a taste of that or they, they touch even just a part of it, that there is this longing to return to it constantly. And and maybe maybe that's there if they don't even have that experience, that there's just kind of some deep knowing within us that's trying to return to that experience, but I would love for you to comment on the idea of chasing it. Yes, yes, yes. That's that's a also a really good question or or point. Let me let me just um, reflect a moment where I want to go because I mean on one on one level, I think the if I could call it the yearning for the for this kind of knowing of our existence, this kind of knowing of our true being, our real what our awareness sort of to know our awareness our experience here and now right now more intimately 
to sort of be able to sense what it is to be, just to be more amply. I mean, I think that yearning is very much to be cherished and praised and sort of, you know, appreciated. It's a beautiful thing that we have this, some of us sometimes have this sort of calling to know our lives more intimately and more, I don't know, I was going to say authentically, I'm not sure if that's quite the right word, but just more, yeah, more accurately, more intimately to know our life right here now in a closer way, a clearer way. I think that's a beautiful thing. However, (laughs) if we're following the path of what I would call practice, which means like, you know, meditation within a sort of context that knows about this kind of stuff, and that has offered a path closer, deeper into it for, for millennia, you know, a path of practice. If we're on something like a path of practice, it's actually important that we, having sort of a delivered ourselves to such a path and to now be following it, this is for those who do, you know, it's important to stop seeking anything. It's sort of part of practice is really just more and more coming into a state of mind state of heart, state of being, where this is enough. And the more we come back to a sense of this is enough, there's just, I I know deep in my bones that somehow, even if I feel I'm seeking something, I know in my bones that what it is, is already here. And therefore, my seeking it becomes a kind of distraction. It's in, in some sense, it's intrinsically misguided to be seeking it even though I'm doing this practice because I'm seeking it, I've got to actually stop seeking it while doing the practice. Mm-hmm. And that is a practice mm-hmm. to be, a, you know, to be <laughs> able to sit in stillness, you know, sitting in stillness with the intention of getting somewhere, but I can only get there by not trying to get there. So, you know, having enough trust, that's okay to let go of my, intention actually it's okay to let go of my purpose in the moment of practicing in other words right now finding a way for this to be okay just here now is somehow enough that's actually the path that will deliver us to what we're trying to get to rather than trying to get to it if you see what I mean so there's a little practice paradox but it is true and it works, you know, it actually works. When we're, when we're free of craving, free of trying to get something, there's a little shift, you know, and that shift can get stronger and deeper and, and it can become a falling away of our normal way of experiencing. It can just all fall away by itself. So that's the path of practice. On the other hand, if we decide, well, I can't wait for that, I'm, I need it now, you know, then, then you got drugs, basically. That's what <laughs> and I'm not a big, I mean, what else, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm not such a fan personally of the, the psychedelic path. And I, I mean, and not on some moral grounds. I've actually done ayahuasca myself um, four times. Once when I was really depressed and really stuck on a book I was trying to write. And it was profoundly horrible and totally helpful. It really helped me. Had a horrible time, just nothing but vomiting and, you know, a couple of moments of strange bliss. But it, but it was incredibly helpful. I, I really got, this is a powerful medicine. 
you know, psychic, psychological medicine. It, it really was deeply helpful. And I swore I'd never do it again. But actually, 10 years later, a friend of mine was dating a sort of ayahuasca shaman, and he was doing it quite regularly. And I did three more out of curiosity, and I felt they were, they left really no impression on me. I, it made no difference to have done them or not done them. It was by then I was much deeper in my Zen training, and the Zen was just infinitely deeper. You know, the, if we really get a clear kensho, it's just it's so much deeper than I, I think anything we're likely to experience on drugs. I, I, I think, and and you know, the fact that you know it's just come out of your own being. It's you don't you don't need anything to show it to you, and and, you know, you, you cannot have, I don't care what people say, really, you can't have a perfectly clear mind, really, on strong intoxicants. You just can't. You, you might get some moment of clarity, a bit like Kensho, maybe sometimes even a, a genuine sort of Kensho, but you're still, you know, your mind has got powerful stuff surging through it. It's not, it's not the same as being just yourself, sober, in an ordinary morning, you know, just clear as you can ever be. And then, ah, you just discover, it just opens. Oh, wow, this is what I really am. You know, and, and it doesn't need anything. Why would it? Because it is what we already really are. So why would it need, you know, a dose of some compound? It, you know what I mean? It's, it really doesn't. But I understand that it's it's a heavy gamble to ask of people. Come and do some meditation and you'll, you'll get some revelation about who you are. Great. How long does it take? Well, there are people who've, you know, first weekend something happens, you know, and there's others who've been doing it 30 years and they're still not really getting it. You know? 30 yeah. years? You know? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I, I remember I kind of went through uh, a period where I was fascinated by Zen and I, you know, bought a number of books and I can't remember what the name I was trying to recall it. And I went to, when I moved from Vancouver to New York, I actually let go of everything that I owned. So all the books that I owned, all the, everything in my apartment, I let, let it all go. And so I couldn't go look at the library. I was trying to recall this book, but it, you know, it talked about the principles of Zen and the the sort of the foundations of it and the postures. And I think at this time I was probably like 25, 26, uh, somewhere in that age, maybe 24. And all I remember was my physical body and my mind getting so caught on the form. You know, I was obsessed with trying to get into full lotus and it was very egoic. And to no avail. I mean, my hips are still to this day just so they're just tight, you know, <laughs> even after yoga and yin yoga and, you know, countless hours of pigeon pose and everything. I mean, they're just like my they're just a force to be reckoned with, which probably says something <laughs> about, you know, my my ego and my personality. But um, but I recall some of the foundational principles of it and how important the postures are. But I'm hoping that maybe you can just give our listeners a bit of a sense of how is Zen meditation, how is the Zen practice differ from other modalities? And yeah, let's just let's just start there. I know we don't have a ton of time left, but let's just start there. Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, I mean, I'd say right off the bat, actually, it's totally unnecessary even to sit on the floor. You can just sit on a chair. The, the, the one part of the posture that I believe is valuable that Zen does sort of emphasize is having a, 
well-aligned spine, you know, and so, and it has some, I think, anatomically well-observed points about what a well-aligned spine is like. You know, we have a little bit of lumbar arch. That's to say the lower back arches forward a little bit. You can try it right now. Anybody who's interested, you know, I mean, I'm not going to lead a meditation, but just getting the spine thing. So, you know, you can slouch where your back is rounded, pushing backward, you know, your back pushes backward, or you can come forward and have the lumbar arch where there's a little bit of, if I'm showing it with my hand, like if this is front and this is back, then there's a little bit like that, like the belly is just coming forward a bit. So the lower back has got this arch in it, lumbar arch. And you don't want to overdo it, but you want it to be enough that you can kind of rest your shoulders over your seat. And it, it just seems natural. It holds itself up. I mean, it might actually seem a little unnatural at first if you're not used to it. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of us are used to having a rounded back and hands up like this working a keyboard, you know, and this is the opposite. It's like hands settle on the thighs or in the lap and, or on the knees or whatever's comfortable. And it, like I said, it's totally okay to do it in a chair, but just having that correctly aligned spine and then the head, sort of the skull kind of floats and it just tips down the tiniest bit. So the jaw, the, the chin is just tucked a little bit, a tiny bit. I mean, I don't know if you can see, I'm doing it slightly now, but it's, so, it's faint. It's, it's really just enough to kind of open up the back of the neck a little bit, a sense of openness in the back of the neck. So, so I mean, it goes on, but essentially being well aligned in the spine and balanced in the upper body is all that really matters. And of course, there are many meditation traditions that don't even think that matters, but Zen does. And I think it's got some reasons that are cogent for that, but every meditation system has its good points and its pitfalls and Zen is no exception. And, and um, what would you say is once you're in the posture, right? Once you've sort of assumed the posture that you're, that you're speaking of, eyes closed, breathing through the nose... And then what, then what would one do if, if one was meditating in a Zen practice is it about the focus on the breath. Is it about returning to the now? Is it about tuning to sensation? Like where, where do people go then? What, again, what differentiates Zen from maybe some of the other modalities? Actually, here's one thing that does differentiate it from some other modes is that we usually have eyes open. We usually have, you know, eyes open with the gaze lowered to, you know, they say sort of approximately 45 degrees. So, you know, you, you, you kind of, you see what's in front of you, assuming you're not sight impaired, and you just don't, you don't pay it any attention sort of thing. You let it be there, whatever it is. You just let it be there, but you don't really look at it. You, you just see it. You receive the impression of light and dark, of shape, of pattern, of color. You just receive it without looking at it. It's almost as if you're looking into the middle distance beyond it. So you just rest like that, gaze slightly downward, body in that position that's going over. And then, you know, usually we start with just counting breaths, like one on the inhale, two on the exhale, three on the next inhale, four on the next exhale, up to 10. And if you make it to 10... <laughs> You start again at one. And if you don't make it to 10, it'll be because we do what we commonly do, which is get lost in thought. 
And then we realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm trying to do this meditation thing. And so that's great. It means we've come back. We've hopped off the train of thought back here, come back to the breath and resume. And that's, that's sort of the simplest kind of most basic style of practice in Zen. I actually have some add-ons because I think it's, for most of us, it's really helpful to have more awareness of how thoughts, what thoughts really are. And so we can listen for them and, and see them more clearly and what, and, and, and to get some emotional understanding and vocabulary and to know how emotion manifests in the body and be able to go to that. I think it's just essential for meditation because, you know, especially if we've never done it, even if we have actually just once we sit down and are still, we're kind of exposing ourselves <laughs> to, to whatever. And for most of us, that'll include probably like, like we were saying earlier, sort of quote unquote unconscious material, you know, that, that'll take its opportunity to, to show itself and be healed and process and healed. And, and that may include, you know, some uncomfortable feelings. And so having uh, an understanding of sort of the phenomenology, like what, what, what feelings really are in terms of body sensation, cognitive stuff, being able to parse that out and process it is vital, I think, for meditators. And so I've got a sort of expanded I don't know if I could say sort of expanded sense of how to how to get a really solid, stable foundation for meditation that I'm teaching these days called original love. That's my twist on original nature that I think is, um, well, I believe in it as a sort of uh, as a stable, healthy, balanced way of approaching meditation before we might get into a more singly sort of sort of um, specific kind of practice. For example, sitting with zen koans yeah uh, thank you thank you for that i f i feel like um you know one of the things that i wanted to dive into was zen koans but I, I, we're up we're, <laughs> we're, we're we are gonna have to close down the conversation for today unfortunately so we'll have to have you back on to you know maybe just discuss some of that i guess you could say inner literature of of how to navigate through the emotions that show up and and discuss a little bit about koans because I would love to have that conversation if you're up for it. And I think the listeners would love that as well. Um, just to close out our, our conversation, where can people learn more about the work that you're doing and you have a book coming up, you know, and so if, if people are wanting to get into that and follow along with your work or come, come and see you and do some work with you, where can they go? Um, the first place would be um, Mountain Cloud Zen Center, and its uh, its 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 website is uh, mountaincloud.org. And then also this new meditation program, sort of basic meditation training program, that a lot of actually a lot of uh, very experienced meditators are doing, as well as some really new people new to meditation. It's originallove.org. Mm. I actually have a book already, which is called One Blade of Grass, mm -hmm. which um, is a memoir. And uh, a lot of people seem to have been finding that very helpful to see how I navigated some of the things we've been talking about. And the new book is called Original Love, but it's, I'm still working on it. So, so it's not ready yet. <laughs> the, labor, the labor of love is happening. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. My, I, wrote, I wrote a book last month and, or last year, and I'm just in the 
process of editing now and my wife is in the process of writing her book we are there with you oh. i understand oh. <laughs> oh, cool 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 oh well, yeah i mean I'm, i gotta say it doesn't always feel like a labor of love sometimes it's no. a labor of hate you know yeah sometimes you come out of the oh, writing God. room and it's yeah. like what is happening what is like i don't know if i did any if i accomplished anything anyways oh. i want to honor your time henry this has been phenomenal i i really appreciate the work that you do We'll have the links in the show notes to your website, to your organization, to your book. And for everyone that is listening and enjoyed this conversation, uh, certainly uh, go check out the work that Henry is doing, uh, his, his former book, and uh, stay tuned on the, on the book that's coming up. And as always, if you appreciated this conversation, feel free to share it with somebody that you know will enjoy it. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. <laughs>